Hey, security peeps, we are live with another edition of Breaking Into Cybersecurity. It is CISO Thursdays. I am Renee Small, cybersecurity super recruiter, helping awesome people, awesome leaders and people <laughs> hire great talent. I am here with my two brothers from another mother. Chris, you, you know, because you've been MIA, I had to adopt another brother here. James was already kind of adopted, but... And now we made him official. He's the brother. You <laughs> always love the big family. I know. <laughs> That's true. I have four. I have four brothers. Four real brothers, by the way. Anyway, James Azar. Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Morning, evening, wherever you may be. I'm so happy to be back stateside. I think last time we did this, I was still in Israel. Yes. Last week. Yeah. Mr. Folon. Howdy, everyone. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. So everybody, um, if you hear an echo from me or if you hear me going in and out, it's because I'm finally in my new place that's been under construction for forever. So James is going to run most of the show for today. If you see me going in and out, that's why. An issue with LinkedIn. So give me folks just a moment here. We're going to. LinkedIn and these issues. At it's it. like never ending with it. Last week we had an issue with LinkedIn too. Yeah, we're going to check something here. Let me just add LinkedIn again and we should be good to go here. There we are. Now we are on LinkedIn. So we're uh, here we are. We're back. We're back. Good stuff. And LinkedIn cannot handle the amount of people that are streaming live on LinkedIn Live. That's I what I figured. I don't think LinkedIn expected the amount of success. Yeah. That LinkedIn Live was going to have for. I agree with that. I think that, um, you know, when they, they've been kind of delayed when it comes to lives because every, all these other social media platforms have lives. And it's interesting, a couple years ago, probably about two years ago, when they first started with just video, I remember that was a big deal. And I went to a conference and they were talking about LinkedIn video. And the lady who was pretty much kind of dominating, I forget her name, but she's, she has green hair. She's an Asian lady with green hair. They were calling her the Oprah of LinkedIn. And she was coming out every day with these little one minute videos. And it was, it was so popular that at the time, the LinkedIn CEO reached out and said, you know, or the team reached out to her and said, this is kind of interesting. Like she was, she was talking about marketing a little, she was in front of, um, I think uh, the Dis she was at Disney or something doing these little videos, these short clips and LinkedIn. And she got so much, um, she got so much, so many positive responses that she ended up, um, you know, doing some learning, teaching and stuff for LinkedIn. But overall, I don't think LinkedIn was prepared for the type of content and how we all have been eagerly awaiting going live on LinkedIn. Well, I mean, think of LinkedIn as being, you know, a lot of people's safe space, right? Um, when, when you go to a lot of different social networks, we see one of the common things is always, you know, the, uh, the aggravating posts or the controversial ones. And LinkedIn has very few of those. Right. Right. Now, I personally think LinkedIn should ban all politicians from its platform. And if you agree, big likes and thumbs up. I think there should be no politicians on LinkedIn. Politicians have no business being on LinkedIn. You know, no one wants to ask a congressman, how'd you get to be a congressman? No one cares. Or a woman. We don't. I don't really want to hear from you. Um, Renee had to drop for just a moment. Um, Renee's in her new spot. So it's just Chris and I. Chris, what do you think? Uh, I mean, the Congress people could be hiring someone. You never know. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't like to weigh in. I mean, it, it is a professional platform. Yes, I like to keep politics out of it. Yes. Um, but there, there's pros and cons to it, right? Because from a, a professional standpoint, trying to promote cybersecurity, we actually need those politicians on to see that we we can have a constructive conversation about that. Yeah, I think I think if you think there's a politician sitting on LinkedIn going, oh, wow, look at this uh, you know, Chris Fallon here, he's making a really good point. Um, this is magnificent. Why didn't my staff tell me about this? Trevor! 
No, that's not what's happening. Tyrone says, hey, oh, they're man. awesome. Hello, Tyrone. Hey, Saul. Uh, Tim uh, Mackey, uh, McKay, or Mackey, I'm sorry, Tim, um, says amen to the idea of no politicians in uh, politics on LinkedIn. I think that would be such an awesome little thing. But um, um, Chris, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, we're midway through the year. A lot of things are starting to open up again. People are going to probably start returning to some in-person interviews. You've been coaching a lot of people recently kind of virtually. How do you see the mentor-mentee relationship change as we kind of transition back to normal life? Well, let's let's talk about quote-unquote normal. Um, We're transitioning from a place where bosses love to see butts in seats simply because they didn't know how to manage, that the only way that they were able to control their workforce was to say, you better show up here at nine o'clock and I don't want to see you leave before five and even later um, to an environment where people have been successfully demonstrating for the most part that they can function in a remote environment. you have companies that have claimed that they're going to stay remote and then they're clawing that back. You have companies that said everyone's coming back, but then they change that again. So I think we're still in flux as to um, what the environment looks like. I say it's going to go back to a hybrid environment. Um, with regards to coaching, I think remote's a great thing for me, right? Because it allows me to it allows me the ability to reach individuals across the country, which if I were only focusing on in-person, A, I have that limitation of um, they had to be local to where I live or within the same region. Then there's all the travel and everything like that to try to organize something. I think being virtual allows um, greater communication when it comes to that. And you could take those same parallels back to growing and managing your team. Um, Less travel means you could focus more on things that are productive. Um, Sure, I think having times where you meet with your teams, you meet with your groups to have uh, creative brainstorming sessions in person, yes, that's that's going to that's going to be very helpful and warranted and needed from time to time. Is it needed all the time? No. so I, I like the hybrid approach. I like the remote approach. Um, I've been working remotely for two years, and I, I want to say that I really don't want to go back to the commute. I mean, losing two to four hours of my day to a commute, I'm not looking forward to that at all. Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll second that. I think one of the biggest things, and, and for those tuning in now, we had a little issue with LinkedIn before. And so we do apologize. We started streaming. We went live. Renee was with us for a few minutes, and then she had to drop, unfortunately. Um, But we did have to drop. So for everyone tuning in on LinkedIn, hello. Thank you so much for joining. Sorry for the technical difficulties we had. You get Chris and myself today. Naomi and Renee are both very busy uh, business people who decided that, you know what? There's Renee. Hang on. Hang on. She's back. She's back. Oh, look at her. I mean, would would you have such an amazing background if you couldn't be remote? (laughs) This is awesome. I think I'm going to do the live from back here going forward. (laughs) (laughs) This is my new backyard, people. Woohoo! I love it. Um, It looks like one of those from like a horror movie where, you know, like you see the, like it looks from one of those from John Wick where all of a sudden you're going to see a bunch of guys with guns show up, like start shooting up the spot. (laughs) It's a total, it's a nature preserve back here. I I love it. (laughs) So Renee, we're kind of talking a little bit about, you know, things are going back to normal, right? We're starting to see more things open back up. Uh, Companies, no, no, things are going back to Chris, did you miss the pictures I sent the group last week of last Friday when I was in Israel of just being in the market, like thousands of people, everyone on top of everyone, man. It was, it was back to normal. There was no new normal. Normal, normal when it comes to -to day-to-day interactions at the store. Yes. Normal when it comes to business as usual. 
I think that's going to change. And if I were to be, if if I were to make a prediction, I don't think 100% butts and seats is going to be uh, expected or commonplace anymore. <laughs> um, Renee, what what are your thoughts? Do you do you see the companies that you're recruiting for um, requiring all candidates to be 100% back? Um, in the office, or are they going to go more with a hybrid approach or a remote approach? Yeah, I'm hearing hybrid um, or remote, depending. Um, most of these, a lot of the companies, like I'm working with one company right now, and they are initially they had well, actually, just filled two positions at one, and they were usually those those roles would have been on site, and though they became remote. And then um, another one that I'm working with now, they are 100% remote right now, anticipating hybrid. Um, but I don't think it's it's very, very interesting. So James and I touched on this last week. There's this um, thing, what's being called the great resignation. And I don't know if you've been seeing this kind of going happening right now, that 25% of the workforce on is on target to to switch and move jobs. And um, which is a big, huge, um, which has hasn't happened. Um, I don't know the last time something like this has happened. I'm trying to get the sun out of my face. Um, and so people are thinking through what the next steps are in their careers. You know, now that COVID is we're going, quote unquote, back to normal. People are now considering. It's wondering, not quote unquote. We're back to normal, folks. Back to normal. Back to normal. Back to normal. Say it with me three times fast. Back to normal. Back to Delta normal. Delta variant. Delta variant. Delta variant. <laughs> Quote, Georgia is back to normal. That's Georgia, but everywhere is not Georgia. Israel, back to normal. <laughs> everywhere is not Israel. That's that's the point. Like you, you have Florida, places back in to normal Texas, you, back to normal. Most important places in the world. Thank you, Eli. First of all, I want to make this. I see this comment, Renee, looking fabulous. I love. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> don't, don't even get me started. So, so like when it comes to the way some places are tackling this, right? I mean, you have the Delta variant on the verge. Um, for those that aren't vaccinated um, and they have the potential to spread this, it, it is still something that can happen. So I think at least for the next six months to a year, you're going to see a, a focus on a hybrid approach versus a quote unquote normal approach. Um, uh, that, that, that's just how I'm seeing it. So this is Leighton Holcomb. It says any deaf psychops being told to go back to the office <laughs> should contact me. Apparently he's looking for people. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> no, no, listen, I the when I say going back to normal, I mean normal life. I'm not talking about people sitting in their car for an hour commuting to work, right? Yeah. I think that's critical. I think what the business world has understood now and what a lot of companies have understood is we don't need a 40,000 square foot of office space in a downtown high rise to do business and make money. So you're going to start and we're starting to see that by the way, if you're looking at some of the quarterly reports that are coming out of companies and I follow that a little bit, you're starting to look at the real estate spend and all the CFOs saying, we're out of this lease in 2022. We're not renewing. We're out of this. Right. And look at companies like CBRE and other real estate management company and commercial real estate people who are telling you, I know of over two dozen commercial real estate people that are telling me, James, I need work because I realized in six months, I'm not going to have any. Yeah. Right. It's going to be different. So so, so what I'm saying, what I'm, when I mean back to normal, I mean like normal life. I'm not talking about all of us sitting in traffic for an hour. Although I'd love for people to go back to sitting in traffic for an hour because they'd listen to more podcasts. And when they'd listen to more podcasts, we'd get more downloads, which would increase our revenue dollars from a sponsorship perspective, right? As long as people work from home, you know, it's live. That's the bang. That's, that's the money shot, right? Like it's, you know. Where just, your head's at. You know, I'm just being honest with you guys. I don't know any other way, but that way to be. But I think that's that's what we're seeing, though, is that is that move where a lot of companies are going hybrid. They're cutting down the footprint. They're only making people show up maybe for four hours. I know that WeWork and Regis, for example, have upped their revenue expectations over the next 18 months because they're going to like mid-sized companies that maybe had a lot of regional offices and saying, hey, you need people to meet once a week in an office for about four or five hours, we'll give you a big meeting room for 500 bucks a day. Yeah. 
that makes total sense. And yep. and use the WeWork facilities and and eliminate all of that stuff. And so we're going to see the, the new transition. I think what I'm very curious about, and I think this is going to be the big change from all of this. And this has nothing to do with cyber, by the way, but it has everything to do with life, and life has everything to do with cyber. Is imagine those buildings that have been predominantly office buildings in downtown areas, like you know, like Dallas, Atlanta, Baltimore, um, New York, where let's say it's fifty-story building or twenty-five, and all twenty-five are offices. Watch what happens when half of a floor becomes a gym and a daycare, and uh, parts of it becomes apartments or, you know, like micro yeah. living spaces for signal, like affordable, you know, a thousand dollars a month, kind of like, uh, I totally see that a modern hotel room, you know, small kitchen, bathroom, uh, bedroom, living room kind of deal for, for recent college graduates who want to still live urban and maybe be right. close to an office because they want to build their relationships and their careers. That could also yeah. be a possibility. Oh yeah, 100%. I thought about that last right around last year this time. I thought about what would uh, uh, you know, a city like New York City, my city, um you know what is going to happen, especially since you had the high rises and I was talking to a couple of friends, actually Dr. Dan has a group and they they were talking about a lot of this. Um and and some of the challenges, the logistical challenges of getting up and down into these high rise buildings because of at the time, you know, six feet, six feet distancing and in, in the biggest elevators, I think you could only get like four people in an elevator at a time. And so immediately I started thinking through like, OK, there's clearly not going to be <laughs> people being jam packed going into elevators like they used to and what is that going to look like and what kind of how would these buildings be and what kind of hybrid environment would they turn into and immediately i thought about um live work spaces all in one so yeah Pierre says there's going to be a lot of empty buildings i don't know i think the real estate companies like cbre and the big ones they're already starting to revamp those buildings they're yeah. also watch how many data centers how many of them are going to lease space to AWS, Azure, Google, and others um, for um, on-the-spot data center? I think it's also going to change the way we look at the cloud, where it's on-prem slash cloud, <laughs> where your cloud provider is in the basement of your building, right? And you have a wire that goes up from your server rack right into your 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 system I mean, that, that's not new i mean azure had um had an offering where they had an azure stack to go um for for those looking for cloud close computing um in the field and it it's not a big stretch to put that in a building um i think when it comes to that uh yes you're right we have to reconsider the cloud um I, I think a lot of companies, when when it comes to their digital transformations, have not fully thought about, like, when they l lose all of their office space or building space, like, what are they going to do with that? Because a lot of small, medium-sized companies, they have their, quote-unquote, data centers in their building. Um, so now they have to think about where they're going to transition that to. Well, so a lot of them are going outside of that, right? I mean, I can tell you that... You know, we we definitely went outside of what we normally operated in, but we were always, I want to say, cloud based, right? Um, I think there's there there there's a there's a thing to that. What I'm talking though about is the more modern startups, the more recent ones, the ones that are used to building cloud native, who now might go to a new incubator that has a you know a small maybe compact AWS service center that's available there or in Azure or Google Cloud or, or whatever else, right? I mean, I'm naming big ones, but it can also be DataBank or, or any other uh, uh, cloud or data center that, that goes in there. The reason I say that is because we're talking about breaking into cyber for a little bit, and I think that's going to be an entry point for people. And I think that's an opportunity that oftentimes goes overlooked, right? A lot of people want to apply for jobs and all of that good stuff, but if you find a building that has that incubate, incubator or accelerator, right? And it's got a mini data center and it's got some apartments and you just go and you reside there and just build those relationships. You're going to break into the industry much quicker than per se someone who's sitting at home just submitting CVs on LinkedIn and 
you know, message pinging people all day long. At the end of the day, relationships are established when all of us are sitting in a room somewhere having a beer or uh, a juice box. If you don't drink alcohol or you're or you're a recovering person who who doesn't believe in substances, and that's okay. Um, I've learned to, that I need to be a little sensitive to that because I'm a big bourbon, whiskey, and scotch drinker, and so you know. Um, but some people just just don't do that, so it, it, it's it's quite okay. But I think that's what we're going to start to see here with, with this hybrid work environment. James McQuiggan is joining us. Do you guys know James, Chris, Renee? Do you guys know yeah. James? You know, James is an awesome little guy, and he wants to change a topic because James has been on a password topic all morning long. I've been speaking with James for about five hours and twenty three minutes as of today because we've been on multiple shows together and. He's asking the questions around passwords. Do CISOs worry about passwords being an attack vector against their org? Where does it fit in the top three concerns? Good to see you, Renee, Chris, and J.A. This morning in Clubhouse, he was J.A., I was J.M. He, I was J.A., he was J.M. Sorry, I did that backwards. Um, I liked, you know, I liked, I, I like to call him Little James. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember James from... Uh... From Clubhouse. <laughs> so I, I actually, I actually met James um, many, many years ago when he was uh, running for board of ISSA, um, and he came to visit our chapter in South Florida, and we've been connected since. I but, um, love James McQuiggan, man. He's one of my favorite people. I'm not just saying that. He really is. When him and I go on the tangent, we really go at it. And he's one of the very few people I know that I can have a very good debate with. And even if we don't agree, we'll still hug it out, pour ourselves a scotch, and go on being best friends forever. Um, and <laughs> he says, you're lucky I can't talk back. See, unlike last night where you got into a clubhouse or a post show, tonight you can't. You can't. You're done. <laughs> but James, back, back come to- on live. <laughs> <laughs> send them the link all the time. I'll send them, send them the link <laughs> the good news is I'm the one that's controlling the show today so I can just keep... <laughs> but, but I want to address um, I, I want to think about passwords I think for a lot of CISOs passwords is already uh, it's now a policy issue I don't know how, how it doesn't fit my top three concerns um, Chris, Renee, what have you guys seen? I want to say when it comes to top three concerns, it fits into the overall um, IM strategy of an organization. And when it comes to their overall threat profile, um, IM is a big concern. So whether you're talking about identities of people, of services, of machines, um, you want to control that. And passwords, unfortunately, which have been hard-coded into a lot of infrastructure that can be invo- that could be a vulnerability for organization. So, uh, I, I think when you look at password and you just think people passwords, that might be a small portion of it. And of course, it's hitting the news these days with um, Colonial Pipeline being subject to their ransomware attack, which was caused by. Um, a password that was found in the dark net potentially um, or password reuse from that individual. Uh, so yeah, I do see it as being a major concern. I don't know about top three, but it is definitely something that gives them heartburn and keeps them awake at night. So passwords don't keep most of us awake at night. Um, I'll tell you why. So in most organizations, right, mature cyber organizations, Passwords are now runs in specific one, you know, um, there's a few vendors that allow you to do single sign on, right? I'm not going to say names and all that good stuff, but, but if you're in the industry, you know who I'm talking about, right? There's a bunch of vendors that give you single sign on. You're able to set a password policy on single sign on. You enable MFA either through an app, a phone text or, or, or any other thing. You set a password policy where someone's password expires every 60 days you make sure the password can't repeat itself, meaning it can't be Chris Fallon one two three, and then next week it, in the sixty days it can't be Chris Fallon one two three four, right? That just that's not going to be an acceptable password. Um, you know, you, you say that right, but those, but those mature, are, again, I preface this by saying mature organizations. I, I'm I've told um, having been experienced even in big Fortune one hundred 
companies, they find ways around that. Um, then you have service accounts that might not change that often, or you have other sorts of accounts that you have to worry about. But then uh, some of the, this ransomware is happening to less sec secure or mature organizations. I mean, you would think your colonial pipeline would be a mature security organization. It's not. Um, you would think your big security, uh, your big power companies are, are very mature. They're not. Um, McDonald's, they were subject to a, a recent um, attack they and it came, it yeah, came they had passwords. So it, it, it does happen. But so I want to I wanna kind of clarify the fact that when we talk about the, what we're seeing now is what we saw the Rock U 2021 uh, password dump, 8.4 billion passwords that were dumped. Um, I think that's completely different. Um, and I think that dump was dumped internally within the dark web between specific threat actors that have allowed some of the more recent stuff that's been password enabled to go that way. And I think they did that now in order to throw the scent off the track of the threat actors who did those crimes. Um, it would it would make some sense there. Um, but again, no proof. I'm just saying that based on just reading a picture, right, of seeing different things that have happened over the last three, four months and, and this action. It's, you know, no one dumps 8.4 billion passwords into the dark web unless there's, you know, something behind it for them, right? Like th th there's something in there for them. Mm -hmm. um, but for for a lot of other people, um, it's 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 uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very different. And, and <laughs> let me just bring you up, buddy. <laughs> I saw you come in, and I was like, Renee sent it, and I love it. What's you know, third time's a charm, James. Now that's Chris. Chris sent the link. He uh, he hooked me up with a little message that says, "You want to have some fun." <laughs> No, good so, to be here. Thrilled to be here. Excited to be here. So, so James, um, you and I talked about this on Clubhouse this morning because yes. you filled in for JJ on the other side of cyber. We talked a lot about passwords this morning. If you guys have not, sorry, Chris. I know we're on breaking into cyber, but I got to give this a shout out because James and I have been doing this all morning. We, we started yesterday, right? Like the right. last 24 hours have just been James and I in either different Clubhouse rooms or uh, LinkedIn Lives or whatnot. But we've been talking about passwords for the last 24 hours. I get why you ask that. Um, and I'm glad to bring you up here so you and I can continue our discussion from this morning and yesterday. Yep. I think it, it, it's so the, the, the The question stems from the fact that I had a conversation yesterday with somebody that does a lot of consulting for CISOs. And there's a disconnect between your InfoSec managers and your middle management and workers, uh, your analysts and so forth, and the CISO and what their priorities are. And when I saw the, you guys had your CISO chat going on, I'm like, oh, let me just drop that in there because I already knew what the answer was, but I wanted to get your perspective and kind of put it out there because a lot of the time we as security professionals, we see risks and we see issues that are going on and we're like, we got to fix this. This is too risky. We got to get it fixed. And either the C-suite and I'll just lump them all in one, they take on a lot more risk than what we feel is comfortable. And so that was kind of where I was wanting to drive the question with regards to understanding the top three things that CISOs worry about and where passwords fit in, because I kind of, I have an idea where they do fit in down here. Uh, but just to kind of put well, it because out. Because it's a policy issue, James. You know, right. this, you were a CISO before you went to know before, and you were a CISO at a major manufacturing organization. For people who don't know, James, James was a CISO over at Siemens. Um, um, Security officer, but yeah. Yeah. Security officer over over at, at Siemens before he went to know before, and I've known you for that long. So you know, four years, yeah, yeah, um, more or less. Um, you were one of the first guests on my podcast when I started it. Um, and so, and yeah, and 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 for me as well. But I will say this: that when you look at what CISOs worry about, our top three concerns today, and if you look at it overwhelmingly, it's one cloud, mm -hmm. and and the major digital transformation that organizations are going and moving to the cloud, right? Number two, supply chain, vendor risk management. You know, SolarWinds still is... And 
Microsoft Exchange, still top of mind in boardrooms. Just because we look at Colonial and we all as security people are talking about Colonial or we're talking about McDonald's or JBS, doesn't mean that people in the boardroom are having those same talking points. Because the people right. in the boardroom look at ransomware and they go, well, we've got insurance, you know, we've got a business continuity plan, our audit committee, our risk committee are adverse to this. They're still looking at Microsoft Exchange and going, wait a minute, we were on Exchange. Someone could have looked at our emails. We still don't have full forensics on Exchange. I mean, I can tell you internally that we still don't have full forensics on Exchange. We don't. Right. We're still doing forensics to see if and what data was compromised. The patch on Exchange didn't take anything out. It just made sure nothing else new came in. Right. But you yeah. still have to go back and you still have to do your forensics and you still got to clean them out. And if you've got, you know, tw- 100,000 different email addresses on Exchange, well, buddy, you've got to do 100,000 different uh, forensic activities, and that's no small feature, right, for any organization, right? You've still got to deal with a budgetary constraint, so you've got to reallocate budget to do this work because you can't just go about it in a normal perspective. So that's also top of mind. And if you look at the third thing, I think that varies based on industry. So the third thing could be based on industry. It could be uh, compliance, regulation, policies, you could be looking at nation state attacks. You could be looking at uh, different requirements from, from different countries among, you know, different cybersecurity requirements, uh, expansion, um, work from home, and the new hybrid work model. All of those things still pay, play top. They're still, a top, I think, in my opinion, based on the conversations I'm having on, on CISO talk, are still top three passwords. You know, James, as much as they should rank up there now, it's become a policy issue. It's a policy. It's a password yeah. policy. Yeah. 14 characters, you've got to have MFA, you've got to change them every 60, 90, 30 days, depending on whatnot. Um, so that so if we have those policies, do you, do you think that would have prevented the colonial issue with the VPN account? No. I'll tell you why. Because policies is, um, to me, uh, password yeah. policies, and here's the problem, and here's where you're getting to, and I'm going to feed this to you with a beautiful spoon like I always do, right? Here, here's... <laughs> Here it comes, right? Uh, policies are one thing. Enforcement of policies is something. Governance. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. But and that, ladies and gentlemen, is a master's class in CISO. <laughs> <laughs> if, if that is set up, if it isn't, my question is this, specifically with passwords and policies, if you're set up in a company where, or if a company is set, the policy is set up, where you have to change it, like you'll you'll get shut off if you don't. Right. Then, how how did how is there even what Chris? It's just a piece of paper. No. The policy is just a piece of paper. It's what the yeah. system no, but I mean, end up doing on the on the systems downstream enforcement on the on the VPN on everything else. The enforcement aspect will likely still lag behind the policy. Now is. There- that not automatic at this point. Like I'm thinking about organizations where I've been in, where if you're if you're if you're out of your password at thirty whatever it is ninety days, like you can't get in, you cannot log back in. Right. So th- that might have been part of, of an enforcement of a policy, but just because okay. a company creates a policy up here doesn't mean that every system yeah. is going to get it down here. Right. And then some systems might, your critical systems might. But then your tertiary systems might not. And then those then become the pivot point for a threat actor that gains access to them into your organization. Or they might come through your managed service provider, your managed security service provider, your cloud service provider. Um, <laughs> so, so Chris brought up an excellent point. So you look at enforcement, right? I can enforce you technologically to change your email password every 60 days. Because when you log in in 60 days, I'm going to kick you out and I'm going to make you pick a new password. Mm-hmm. Colonial, on the other hand, they were breached through an old VPN password that they were using. Right. right? Mm-hmm. I, I can make a policy to enforce it. I have no technological methods, meaning someone's got, I got, someone's got to create a ticket every 60 days or 30 days or 90 days, you know, within ServiceNow or wherever, whatever ticketing system you use internally within IT to say, go to all of our VPNs and please change all passwords, right? And then someone's got to look at that ticket and go, okay, I need to do that work. And 
if you've never sat in a sock or sat in a place where, where people actually, you know, look at this, no one looks at those tickets. Those are low priority tickets, right? And they kind of get buried over a user who doesn't have access, a new hire who's having issue, an executive who needs something done. And it gets buried kind of like patching. You know, if we look at Equifax, Equifax buried their Apache Struts patch in a, in a bunch of email chains. Like someone, need to, someone needs to go and do this patch. But no one really went out and did it because, well, you can't really patch it because you've got to do all these updates. And no one really took ownership of doing any of those updates to make sure that the, the, you know, the patch would, would not disable any business function. And so lo and behold, here you go. So, again, that's the difference between having a policy and enforcing a policy on email. We all are familiar. The policy is 100% enforced everywhere. But all of this didn't happen from email passwords. They happen from passwords to other other applications within the business. Right. And accounts that were discovered in a breach when you, I mean, this is part of your threat intelligence, right? Or your threat landscape work where you're going out and looking at, okay, how many of you, how many of our email accounts have been compromised and looking at those breach reports or looking at those, you know, have somebody in your organization, if you do have the personnel that can go out and research and see, all right, how many of us have been impacted? You know, have I been pwned can at least give you a good chunk of that. So if you discover you've got one of your own employees or somebody in your organization with a, your domain that you can go, okay, your account's been compromised. You need to change it immediately, change all your passwords, change, you know, and so forth. But I think the policy is, is what sets forth the rule and the guidance for the organization, what we're going to do. You've got your governance. It's got to check it, but then you also need your, your threat landscape uh, resource as well. And a lot of large organizations are going to do it. It's tougher on the smaller and media, uh, the small and medium business ones as well. So they they don't even have threat intelligence. They, they don't have the threat intelligence to go out there and do that. They don't have the, they, they might have just a one IT guy doing everything and they're not going to keep up with all those different things. Uh, they're going to be focused on what's, what's being done to keep the lights running. Yep. It's, it's the, you know, we got to get it a hundred, right. We got to get it right all the time. And the bad guys just got to get it right once. Right. So um, yeah. it's the risk. And these are the risks. This is what the CISO and the C-suite is all about is looking at the risks and looking at what the impact could be and the likelihood and their whole ERP program. That's going to help them make those decisions on what, where they put the resources. Cause you can only, you know, plug so many holes in the dam. Yeah. I mean, we look at passwords and we talk about passwords. Passwords is partially the maturity of an organization and a security program. Right. Right. So it's it's a lot of times to me, changing passwords should be something you give your nighttime MSSP to get done. Right. Or you you have some sort of MFA attached to it that on those critical accounts. I mean, accounts coming in from the outside, you have some sort of MFA in that. I mean, even the the treat the Oldsmar plant here in Florida there was a bunch of user accounts discovered in uh, breaches as well. Now there are smaller and it's, it's uh, county government or city government. So we know that they may, they don't have the resources to be able to keep an eye out for that kind of stuff, but having multi-factor authentication adds that extra layer. It's not a hundred percent. It's no, you know, uh, foolproof way, but it's a lot better than just having a username and a password. Or, or even pivoting them away to like, uh, time-based tokens or single-use yeah. single-use access tokens that get tacked on to a known secret, and your access token plus your known secret that as a password um, plus MFA that adds a layer of complexity um, that most threat actors won't be able to get at because it's ever evolving. It's right. it, it's not it's uh, ephemeral. So. So, so that's a great point, Chris. And what you're coming up with is real practical solutions. And you make so much sense that no one's ever going to do anything about it. Right. And that's, that's the sad truth. Um, and that's, that's, you know, you, James cringed. Um, and, and you were like, oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. He's right. I, I mean, for example, StreamYard. StreamYard uses a process like that for granting access to their platform. Um, some people don't even have to have a, a, a password to access no, their account. You don't exactly. have a password to access your account. Exactly. So you can use something like that to where you're, you're granting temporary access to 
an interface that will then give you a, a token that you get for the rest of your access. And then you can use things like secrets management and other vaulting solutions to be able to give them a one-time use password or access token or however you want to call it that comes from that, that interface that you interact with, but you're not at that point in your environment. You're just getting the access token from that interface that they will then access that service or that API or whatever um, in order to conduct that, that transaction or do whatever you're doing. So um, the most common password this year, um, that's really fun. We talked about it this morning. You guys COVID-2021? <laughs> no. Football. Yeah. Football? Football? Football. Yeah, soccer. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's football. football. It's, it's, it's yeah. called football. All right. You, you should know better, man. You're from Belgium. You should know I know, better. I know. All right. In um, Germany, it's foosball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we've got a few comments here. Um, we, we've uh, LinkedIn's been having issues today. Um, so Ben Olson on YouTube says, RIP Canada, far from normal. Uh, you guys elected Trudeau. You got to live with him. I'm sorry. <laughs> Zero sympathy from this side of the world, this side of the continent. Um, great group, great conversation to be the main topic in every, con- in every organization. It is in a lot of organizations, by the way. Uh, I think password is, is, is talked about often. It's just the enforcement of it is the challenge, right? The enforcement is re- who's responsible for it, who's going to do it, how often are you going to do it? And some passwords, unfortunately, in some systems are reused among four shifts. Sure, so yeah. Changing it uh, doesn't always uh, make it effective um, because you could be hindering people's uh, productivity or effectiveness um, on, on, on getting access. Um, what John, do you think? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm wondering why, why do you think people don't use a, a scenario more like the StreamYard one where you don't have a password? You just, oh. or when you log in now to Amazon, wherever, it's just like, give me a one time code, money, the usual. <laughs> okay, got so it. Every time StreamYard sends you a password, it costs them money. The thing about StreamYard, though, is they count on you not logging out, right? They count that you're going to log in and stay in, and you may do it once a month, once every several months. Maybe they've looked at it, and some users don't even ever log out, right? So it costs them maybe under a set to send you a password, right? But but that's that. Now think of it in an organization where if every time I got to send you a passcode, it's going to cost me a penny. Now put that in a multi. You don't need to send them via SMS. There's there's so many um, applications that you can use. I mean, one password and all the other password managers use the the zero the zero uh, authentication. Um, mechanism where you can scan that barcode and you can get that that revolving um token directly from the app so you don't even need to be sending sms well let's not even get into the the insecurity of that but 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 that's the thing so yeah we've we've talked about that before um you know Streamyard sends it to the registration registering pass uh, email address right so you log in and that's from a SaaS perspective you can't do that for email. You can't necessarily do that for app specific applications um, because some applications in, in some cases have a, have a different, different process of doing it. A lot of it though is architecture, infrastructure, and cost. And that's what it boils down to. It's also productivity. If that system goes down and I can't send you an MFA or if the MFA, there's a delay between, you know, the app on your phone or one password to our architecture or infrastructure. And, you know, if you ever tried to use a bank token, think of the old bank tokens. So if you've ever traveled, um, and I used to travel a lot and I'd have a bank token and I'd be sitting somewhere and I'd want to transfer money and the token would have an update and wouldn't recognize the code and I'd have to wait, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 seconds in order to enter a new code so that it picks it up. Um, I, I can't tell you how frustrating that is but imagine doing that to a, to a workforce trying to function. And imagine doing that to an executive, right? And getting a call from your CFO who says, you know, I've wasted three minutes trying to log in, Mr. IT manager. You know, go screw yourself. Put it back to normal. I've, I've, I've actually had those conversations where um, back in my help desk days where they didn't want MFA on their account because they had to input one more 
part of the the uh -huh. like the token or whatever and i'm going you're the ceo of this company if you're going to fish anyone if you're going to target anyone you're the first person that you're going after so you definitely should have this like and they would go and they would get exceptions and i'm like you're just creating more risk for the organization by getting an exception for you around this process that that's that's elitism at its best. All right, yep. so let's get to some comments. John Rosario says, healthcare infrastructure and mid-sized businesses have become the main targets over the past 18 to 24 months. Yep. Um, free stage MFA sounds like a great strategy. Um, it sounds like a productivity nightmare. We talked about it this morning, didn't we? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, for your most secure, secret, sensitive applications, yeah, you want to throw up your three MFA. But for logging into your accounts or, you know, it all comes down to, the you know how much risk how sensitive that that system is or or is it holding your your secret recipe for your th geothermal power plant or whatever it may be you know certain things need certain fried levels of protection so what's that fried chicken fried chicken well yeah, yeah. Coca formula, <laughs> I mean, I mean coca-cola um, or if you're in other side of the world, it's Pepsi, right? You know, um, so yeah, you're. It's going to depend on how important or how critical that data is or system is. Will depend on what kind of um, how many levels of authentication you're going to put in there, and that's going to come from CISO, IT, business owner, legal, and so forth. So, how many of you guys have ever spent time at the NKIC or US CERT or the FSI SAC or any one of those ISACs that? get alerts from organizations about different security challenges they're dealing with. Anyone ever sat in one of those? I get alerts from them. Yeah, I get alerts. <laughs> so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reach out. I, I want to reach out to John Felker, who used to run the NKIC for DHS. And I think, James, you know John, right? Oh, I know him. No, uh, no of him, yeah. 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 yeah, so I'm going to reach out to John. John, I had John on my podcast a few years ago. Uh, when they had Hacker Halted here in Atlanta, me and had, him and I sat down and we had a fun conversation in the halls of the uh, event. And one of the things we talked about um, that was very interesting was the idea of what people consider to be crown jewels. So right. let's say, for example, I go through a phishing campaign. And now I'm reporting the sophisticated phishing campaign to the NKIC so that they're aware of it, so that they can start monitoring it so that they can issue an alert for everyone else. Most systems, most security people will send that as top secret classified, right? Redacting so much information. And then there's a process to spread that conversation and spread that forward. And now the process is I've got to go in and look at the redacted information and see what we need to redact. And by the time I send it out, it's 10 days late. And the information is kaput. And so when you talk about password policy and, and like MFA and, you know, what James said and, I, and, and Chris, what you guys said in an ideal world, you know, you would know where you need to have, you know, maybe three factor MFA or, uh, you know, or, or three stage MFA. I'm sorry. And in some places where you'd be like, all right, username, password, get in. There's nothing in here. Well, if you, everything you consider to be top secret in your organization and you don't have a good data classification policy, or you think any sort of data screw like out there is bad, right? Like, then guess what? You're you're going to have an issue, and that issue is going to be it is going to be the fact that you're going to have multi authentication layers. That's going to get the CEO to call help desk, go get an exception to not do MFA, and get that exception, right? And then yeah. yeah. I, well, I mean, when when you talk about crown jewels, like that, that's a totally different conversation to have because most companies <laughs> a can't identify what what their crown jewels are and decide on that across the organization. B have defined data definitions of how to identify their crown jewels, especially as you're leaving out either an API or the front door, um, and, and C being able to put controls around those. So. I think that's a whole a whole other show, but um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 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 that. Go ahead, James. I'm sorry. I was going to say I hate to interject here, but I have to drop off. I have to do a presentation to an organization in about eight minutes, and 
we're going to be talking about passwords. So it's going to be, this has been, this has been, we were uh, just warming you up. This was a warm up for you. This was was a warm up for James. We were a warm up for Jake. This is like, wow. I'm honored that you would pick us as a warm up. I always, I just got to thank you. I just just got, I have to thank Chris for inviting me up here and, and great opportunity to chat with all of you and, and to your audience. So, um, Great. I sorry if I hijacked the show with the topic, but um, no, there's a good topic. There's, there's, I've got plenty more of them, so I might be around for a couple of weeks, a couple more weeks, and uh, popping in. So, um, thank you again to everybody. Have yourself an awesome afternoon, and I'll talk to you all soon. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks. Come back See soon. Okay. <laughs> all right. So we'll get to some comments here, and 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 well played, uh, uh, Chris Fallon. Well, well played. Sir. <laughs> um, well, Chris did also, that. All of a sudden, I saw him in the backstage, and I'm like, is that James McGuigan in the backstage? <laughs> awesome. Well, you, so, you, 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 taunted, you taunted him, so he had to come up. Well, you know, I taunt him all the time, and he taunts me back. Uh, that's the beauty of our relationship is we can taunt each other and still love each other, and I think that's, that's special um, in so many ways. Um, John says, LOL, James, I didn't mean using first stage MFA forever system. I agree this would strain productivity and an organization network. John also says, great podcast and a great conversation. Uh, Teresa says, employee awareness training is key. It's like a human shield protecting your assets. That is absolutely true. But now I'm going to kick this and I'm going to ask both you and Chris, you and Renee a question here because we're almost out of time. We've got about five minutes left. So people that are looking to break into cyber, we just talked about passwords. Where do you guys see an opportunity for the diversity of thought to come in and kind of change the challenges that we go through with passwords? So for me, I think having individuals that can sit with the business, understand the the workflows that each business unit has, and they could come up with a risk-based approach to secure the more, more critical systems in a way that works for the business, as well as risk management and cyber provides the best approach for an organization. And someone coming in potentially as a business analyst that can speak to the cyber aspect as well as understanding the business requirements and be able to marry those two together, that's an interesting way to break into the field because you're coming in potentially as an analyst in a non-technical form, but you're gathering those requirements um, for cyber and having those interactions with them. Love it, Renee. I think the psychology, I think someone that has like a psychology background that really understands um, passwords as a whole, like thinking about the history of passwords, how we've gotten to this point and what we can do to, to you know, piggyback off of some of the stuff Chris said with the business analyst piece having that diversity of thought around what we can do to make it seamless, simple, um, hopefully not expensive, but be in a, in a scenario where we can really, they can sit back and kind of solve that challenge. Um, like Chris said, with the business, so a business analyst, somebody, you know, a combination, I think it, it would be multiple people connecting together to come up with some solutions around this because it seems like it would be, and and I know Chris made this point and I was in and out earlier, um, but Chris made a point about, you know, the more, um, the more mature security environments, I think kind of having this buttoned up, is that the case, Chris, for you? Did you make that statement? No. No, I mean, James made that statement that the more mature organizations might have it buttoned up, but what what's that what percentage of organizations is that 5% 8% financial services <laughs> I mean, the ones that have that needed it first so uh, yeah uh, but but when you look at maturity of an organization i think the majority has nothing to do with whether a company's fortune or not i think the majority yeah. has everything to do with leader maturity has everything to do with leadership and so i can be a, a 150 million dollar a year company but i've got a mature leadership that looks at security and understands why enforcement is critical for the growth of the organization and its protection. And well, we're more mature than a, you know, $70 billion a year fortune 100. 
And and one of the ways to get away from passwords is, is like taking a, a zero trust approach, right? Not just wait, wait be, before you smug <laughs> and zero laugh. Trust. Think about think, think, think about think about it from this perspective, right? Ra ra rather than just saying, okay, well, is this Renee? And saying, do I trust Renee based on her username and password? This is Renee's laptop. Renee's laptop is on our network or is on a trusted network. It's authenticated. We've proven that it's not infected. We, we've done scans. We, we trusted a little more than if she were off in Nigeria on a VPN because she just logged in from there. Um, it makes a big difference as to how much trust you can give that authentication session if you start taking into consideration all those additional factors, not just the username and password. So I will tell you this. There's a place for zero trust in the password game, right? Somewhere within the password management process in authentication of a user. The challenge I have with the current implementation modules and models of zero trust is none of it is practical in a place where it would defend your passwords 100%. Now, Microsoft is playing around with it. We'll see what Microsoft comes up with. It. Um, yesterday on ZDNet, I believe yesterday or the day before, they had an interview with Brett, the CISO over at Microsoft, and he talked a little bit about it. And I read that, and you know, it seems very ambitious. I don't know how, um, how, how doable that is. Um, and, and, you know, when you test something in an organization like Microsoft within a specific team of Microsoft, it, it's, it's almost like testing, um, you know, when you're in the military, you go into a gas chamber and then you come out and you got to, you know, stab yourself in the, you know, with the antidote in the thigh. And that's essentially to teach you that if you're ever hit by a biological weapon, you don't die. You're able, you're able to brave enough to, you know, stab yourself in the thigh, you know, to make sure you don't die of anaphylactic shock. Well, you know, if you do that, if I take, you know, 10 Joes off the street and I put them in there, good chance nine of them are going to die because not everyone is going to look at the needle and go, uh, 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 dead, right? But when you're in the military, you're coming out your nose, and, and, and but you're doing it, you know what you're signing up for, and you stab yourself in the thigh and you go about your day, right? Life goes on. And, and I think that with the Microsoft trial of this stuff, they haven't tried it outside of Microsoft. And so I'm very pessimistic over the implementation when you take it outside of a technology company where its leadership prides it as being the next cyber company. And I believe that Microsoft's going to be a top five vendor in security within the next three to five years. Like we are going to look at security companies and Microsoft's going to be in the top three. It's not going to be CrowdStrike. It's not going to be Palo. It's not going to be anyone else. It's going to be Microsoft and likely Amazon and likely Google. Those are going to be the big three security companies, and they're going to eat everyone from under them because, well, they have the revenue and they've got the client base. So they're just going to acquire, 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 and offer it and, and, and somehow have that. So when you do that within Microsoft and your test group is a, is a good group of people who understand what they need to do, it's different than taking it to company Y with departments that, you know, barely do their phishing, you know, uh, tests, um, you got to beg them to get those done. That's yeah, conditional, conditional access as, as a, an approach um, works in different organizations. I've seen it implemented in smaller organizations, larger organizations. So it's just one layer of an approach. Did it take away from username and password? No, it didn't. But it's an, an additional layer of scrutiny that goes into deciding whether you trust that authentication session from that user and what level of um, access you want to give them at that point in time. Okay. I mean, I, I again, um, I, one, we're, we're two minutes over, so I want to be respectful of time. Um, this is a great discussion, and I think we should continue to talk about this next week. And I think it's great for people that are breaking into cyber to get a lesson on zero trust and what it means. And maybe we'll reach out to someone as well and bring on a guest. If Naomi can't join us, we'll hope, hopefully Naomi will be with us next week, right? We've been missing Naomi for a few weeks now. Um, yes. So so um, uh, you guys uh, go message Naomi and be like, if you're not on Cecil Thursday next week, we're going to shadow ban you. All right. <laughs> um, Let's not do that. <laughs> 
But but it, as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe on all your favorite podcast uh, platforms as well as on YouTube. Um, subscribe there, and you'll you'll be able to review and access these sessions at a later time as well. Absolutely, folks. Thanks so much, Renee. We love your background. We wish that to be your background every week. I, I think that is a, you've calmed me down in a place where Chris tried to ambush me. And James, I'm successful. And he was successful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Cheers, Bye, everyone. everyone.